Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this latest Empire Podcast interview special. Joel Edgerton has come a long way since Attack of the Clones. I know how he feels. The former Owen Lars has, over the last decade or so, established himself as one of the best character actors around, with memorable turns in the likes of Warrior, Red Sparrow, Gringo, and Black Mass, to name but four. But the Australian is a bit of a multi-threat as well. He made an excellent directorial debut a couple of years ago with the horror thriller The Gift. And now he's back on both sides of the camera with Boy Erased, which opened today in the UK. It's a story of a young man played by Lucas Hedges, who is sent to a gay conversion therapy centre, yes, one of those appalling places that actually do exist, by his Baptist parents, Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman. There, he struggles with the methods of Edgerton's strict counsellor. When Edgerton came to London to promote the film recently, we sent our very own John Nugent along to talk with him. And so here's their chat. Hope you enjoy it. We are thrilled to have Joel Edgerton on the Empire Podcast. How are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you doing? Thank you. Very, very well, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, we're here to talk about uh, Boy Raised. Yes. Your, your second film as a director. Yeah. Um, and it was a book originally, right? It was a memoir about a, a gay conversion, conversion therapy in one man's... Yeah, a memoir experience. of the same name written by a, a boy... Uh, well, a, a man by the name of Garrett Conley. Mm-hmm who in 2004 had been kind of viciously outed to his parents and then uh, happened to have a father who was a a Baptist minister Mm. and uh, they saw his sexuality as a problem and sent him off to a a conversion therapy place. And he, you know, 10 years after the fact, had had gotten around to... um, feeling the need to put his experiences down on paper and talk about his experiences there and and really essentially to to explore his not the just that time but but his family and the the whole family dynamic that surrounded that choice and mm. the aftermath of that choice mm. and what was when you first read the book what was your sort of initial reaction did you see a film in there like immediately did you see the cinematic potential well I kind of opened the book first because you know I, I, I couldn't believe that the people who gave it to me you know were unaware of the fact that I am obsessed by anything mm. that is a facility like prisons cults you know asylums and I'd been fearful of those things as a child and I think it was the fear of separation from my parents and the idea that I could be like locked up somewhere. I don't know I don't know why. I think I watched the wrong TV shows and movies when I was way too young. Um and and exposed to those sort of uh the fears of of being out there in the world. And and as a filmmaker of more of a, as an actor digesting movies as I was going through drama school. Mm. I was really really in love with movies that were about people breaking out of these places and you know um midnight express and one flew over the cuckoo's nest and and Mm. and the like and so i read boy rose so quickly because i'd heard grabs of information about conversion therapy and i was like here's this sort of religious institution cult-like thing that i i've heard about but i you know this guy's been through it i'm going to read about his experience and without knowing him personally it was it was sort of to be honest, it was a morbid curiosity I had about the place. Um, when I realized it was worth turning into a movie is as I got it about three quarters of the way through the book and his mother, you know, spoilers aside, his mother had a, 
who had been complicit in sending him to mm. the place had a re-examination of that choice in a way that was so supremely heroic that I saw this hopefulness that was a, sort of a glimmer of light within this very harrowing story that I thought this this could actually be a very powerful and positive movie to make because of that evolution, because of the, the central character's evolution of finding his own agency to bust himself away from this place, but his mother's uh, uh, evolution to turn her opinion around to, to instinctively protect her child mm. in the face of big things like God and religion, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say you... you uh, I, I think I read somewhere that... As a child, your dad made a joke about locking you up or something. Was this, was <laughs> this dad, like a deep-seated thing? I, I, I hope. I, I, it's funny. My mum recently said to me, oh, yeah, I heard you said something about me in the press. This. And I was like, oh, look. I, you know, I'd say like my mum had let me watch Death Wish trilogy when I was way too young. She's just like, you're, you're making everyone think I'm a bad parent. Um, so my dad, the story goes that, you know, I'd, I'd been misbehaving, obviously, in a in a minor way I hadn't shivved anybody at school or anything I'd been misbehaving in some way and my dad made a joke uh, while we're out at a restaurant local sort of tavern or pub or whatever mm. that um, he he decided to and, and organised to swap me and my brother for these two more well behaved kids on the other side of the country as part of this sort of like children swap program <laughs> and it was clearly a joke that my brother got because he was a year and a half older than me, but I was still in that pocket of uh, complete gullibility and naivety, which I still don't think I'm out of yet. <laughs> and I, I, in this restaurant, I burst into tears because oh, no. I believed him. I thought, I'm, I'm going to be sent away to live with a strange family somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so my dad did that. He, he thought it was funny at the time, but then he realized <laughs> it wasn't funny and he pulled back. And this is trauma you're still dealing with now. Yeah, it was a great year I spent with that family, by the way. I learned to play <laughs> piano. And, I mean, that was... Actually, that was the funniest thing about that 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 joke that he made because he started telling me about how well behaved these two other kids were that he yeah. was going to get, and it was his way of going behave better, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the gay con conversion therapy, which you know we should say is obviously it's, it's pseudoscience. It's not. It, it's it's been discredited. What like just obviously doesn't work. Yeah, um, it's 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 not sanctioned. Mm -hmm. um, the the fact that that all these different places operate in isolation with different therapies as reference the mm. bastardized or appropriated therapies you know that there's no uh, umbrella unified kind of organizational group right. that says enough about how um how backward they are and how how you know um sort of archaic and weird and 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 should be shut down but also that the people who used to run them yeah I mean, two of the most powerful figures that I know that used to run them both acknowledge that they don't work. Yeah, yeah. And and w watching the film as well, there's something sort of faintly absurd about it and kind of laughable. Like the, the, yeah. you, they have like handshake training, you know, like, like that's going to... Yeah, reading the rules is enough to make you kind of raise your eyebrow and think, all right, what's, what, what's going to happen here? Mm -hmm. You know, like the fact that if you were a client as they called them and you wanted to go to the restroom bathroom that you would not be able to go on your own and certainly not be able to go with another client that you had to be supervised 
by a teacher, by yeah. one of the therapists. So, you know, you can't just go and have a piss on your own. You can't like take a slash <laughs> because it's the, this culture of mistrust of yeah. what you would do. Um, you know, no, no physical contact amongst clients except for the briefest of handshakes. Mm. All these rules that were so, you know, I mean, about how often you should shave and how long your skirt should be and so on, you know, mm. weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and it, the film is a, it's, it's a real acting showcase, especially like the, the sort of central family of Lucas Hedges and then you've got Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe as the parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, was that a treat just to, to witness that sort of acting standard firsthand? Yeah, well, you realise when, you, when you've written a movie and you, you get a chance to make it that you've sort of punched a you know, front row ticket to right. watch some of your favourite actors at work. You it's know? like theatre. Yeah, and... and um, you know, so so the more joyful days are actually the ones where I'm not because you know I, I play a role in the film, but I'm mm. only I'm only in the film for I, I guess out of 35 days that we shot, I was I was in front of the camera for about 10 of those, so okay. a, th- a little less than than a third. The most joyful days are sitting there haggling with the other actors who are about to do a scene, sitting there behind the monitor and watching it all happen and, and yeah. realise that you've captured some magic and, and that you've watched two of your favourite actors or three of, you know, Lucas now is, is one of them, th- three of my favourite actors uh, go toe-to-toe with each other. Yeah. And, and what is that like sort of directing yourself? Is that, a, is that a stressful thing? Do you have to spin a lot of plates? It's, it's, it sort of puts me in a... It's actually taught me a lot about you know, myself as an actor because... It's a different way of approaching work than when I work with another director. I have a lot of time on my hands mm-hmm. to sit around and think about what's about to happen. They move cameras and I get time to reevaluate. And, you know, you get a lot of time. Basically, mm-hmm. time is a commodity, but time can also be an enemy. Yeah. Because you can overthink things, you can yeah. premeditate things. Sometimes the lack of time could be a real friend. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, being a director in a movie and then presuming to step into the frame at the right moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lack of time could be a friend because you, you literally just have to step into the frame and, and start doing something. Right. And, and the realization that all that time that you don't have, that you would have on another movie to just think and ruminate and prepare and all that stuff, that that time has actually been really, really, really well spent in a mm. complex way by being the writer and going through every aspect of pre-production. And you realize in that moment that there is no better preparation for being playing a character in a movie than being the person with the most information about everything that's right. going on. Right. Um, and then that free fall doesn't feel so much like a... Um, like like falling without a parachute it, it it feels like a very interesting stepping into the unknown that you are you realize you're very well bolstered and you have a lot of information and and um and and magic can happen they're just they're just more stressful days and more adrenalized because you, you're basically running around doing everything and, yeah um you know but you don't have to do it every day of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. Beats working down a coal mine, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And does it give you a bit of an advantage as a director as opposed to uh, directors who just stay by the monitor the whole time? You, do you have a bit of camaraderie with the actors? You know, like- yeah, there's that. There's, there's, there's so many complicated things to it. Like, for example, I, I, uh, one, one of the negatives is that if you, you and I are doing a scene together, 
and I had my brother there. He's the director, mm. and he he would stand behind the monitor because I don't like to look back at my own performance. Right? Oh, right. I feel like it takes me outside of myself. I start to monitor myself too much. Mm. So I'd tell him, you know, like, Nash, this is what I want to achieve in the scene. And, and the, you know, I knew what the frame was. I'd have, like, a double walk around inside of it and know what the edges are. And then I'd go, okay, well, now I just go in and fill it and do what I do what I think mm-hmm. is right. And then I could look at my brother and go, you know, look for the thumbs up or the kind of the wavering hand of, oh, so-so, let's go again. Um, the the real tricky thing is then going, when, when I'm in a scene that's a two shot or, or three hander or something is, is is to hear my brother yell cut and then immediately look at another actor and go okay here's what you got to do next mm. because it's immediate sign that you know were you in the scene or were you just monitoring the other person and and th- they're the challenges is, is not being able to be as blunt about performance as as you right. could when you're just being the director so yeah. I found that a little tricky. Um, it's a, it, but it is. It was wonderful on certain days, like being in scenes with Lucas, where you know, there's a scene just before he he's about to walk out of the place, where we get to really just sort of have at each other, mm. and I let the camera just sort of stay wide for a lot of those shots, and it was like being on stage with him. It was like being in a performance on of oh, theatre wow. rather than a piecemeal fractured stuck together pieces of a you know of an edited film mm. it was like we were able to really rip in yeah. that fly and that was wonderful oh nice mm. so the, yeah the, the the man that you play he runs the the, the conversion therapy uh, and he's based on a real person right who, who yeah. i think did you consult with him in uh, on the film yeah the there's a man called john uh schmidt who my character's based on he had been Garrett's therapist for many well he'd been the therapist that ran love in action in memphis for many years and Garrett had come there for for an assessment program so john had been Garrett's therapist um and i well john's life is very different now he he left love in action um in the late 2000s or 2008 i think and Love in Action is now no longer a thing. Okay. Um, but there are many, many, many other places that still exist, but Love in Action itself is shut down. John has now turned his back on conversion therapy. And he, if you watch the film, you'll see he has a, a very different new life. Um, and that life is embracing of uh, the kind of sexuality that he would try and therapy out of people Mm. (laughs) he's no longer into conversion because he realizes it doesn't work because uh i mean look i mean to be honest it it just didn't work on him you know yeah and so i met with him very interesting to go meet a guy who i I would have prejudged as being a very vicious Mm. uh dominating hateful person who was actually really interesting to meet and talk to, like very open-hearted, very charismatic. Okay. I, I imagine, you know, with all the fear and anxiety walking into a conversion therapy place, you know, coerced by your parents and, and, and then to be met by this warm, friendly mentor, mm. mentorly figure would have felt like a, a nice welcome mat to what you would expect as a very fearful place. And that mm. itself is unsettling to think that you go, hey, man, we're all in this together. You know, God at the moment, he's, he's got a question mark hanging over us, but we are going to tackle this thing together and I'm here for you. You know, that, yeah. that, that sort of uh, 
that that warm arm around you that says I'm, I'm i'm here to help you is 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 sort of maybe a little bit more unsettling than they're right now your parents are gone kid i'm gonna whack you with this yeah, big stick yeah. you know yeah but what is he i mean i imagine he lives with a lot of regrets about that sort of period of his life but how did he feel going into uh consulting on a film that essentially paints him not as the bad guy but effectively the antagonist well there was there, he was he was brave in the unknown of what was about to happen in the movie and it's it, it shows it's testimony to the fact that he is willing to open his heart to and acknowledge the mistakes that he's made it's like all right mm. i i you know there was this, he kept using the word imperative and and important and 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 in his discussions about making the film that he was willing to participate as a consultant. He, he thought that it was an important thing that Garrod's book was turned into a movie, um, that it was imperative that we included aspects of the, the, the deeper damage like suicide. And, mm. you know, and, and it is very brave on one hand because he, like you say, is essentially potentially going to be the villain. And here I was, facing not only John Schmidt but Garrett's father and mm-hmm. being accepted by both of them knowing that if if anyone's going to be the villains of the piece it's going to be either one of them or both yeah. and trusting me when I said to them I'm going to look evenly at everybody's point of view mm-hmm. at this thing because I don't believe that you all are villains I don't believe you all are bad people I don't believe you all woke up every day going how do I make Garrett's life worse in fact, it was the opposite. They were waking up every day going, how can I help Garrett's life be better? Um, and that to me, that conundrum was the most interesting aspect of, of or, or, and one of the most challenging things to crack in the film is going, all right, well, how do, how, do, how do we give these parents the compassion that says that they did this out of love and not out of hate? Mm. That they were trying to help something that was unhelpable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And that conundrum is going on in so many households. In, in not just America, in, in the UK, in Australia. Um, and, 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 you know, to find the hopefulness in, in Garrett's mother's turnaround, you know, that, that mm. his mother was complicit and yet at some point she went, wait on a second, I'm hurting my son. I was told this would help him, but I'm seeing it's hurting him and he doesn't want to be here anymore and I'm going to actually stand by him despite what everybody else says. The hopefulness in and around that, the hopefulness in people being able to re-examine their choices, re-educate themselves, really question their own belief system even, to me that was worth turning into a movie. Yeah. And this, as I say, this is your second film as, as director and yeah. The Gifts was your first and that's quite a different film in, in many ways. Like, How did, how did the two uh, sort of experiences compare? Well, there's something in the 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 theme of human humans falling down and getting themselves back up mm. um or not getting themselves back up that i that i think is is a commonality between the gift and this you know mm. interestingly um i look back on the first film i ever wrote called called uh, the square um a movie i wrote called felony other things that i've written on my own all seem to have a character or characters who make a big mistake 
and spend a long time traveling down a road to get back to a place where they can recorrect that mistake. Yeah. The gift was the opposite. The gift was Jason, Jason Bateman's character, someone who, who, who made a big mistake and was unwilling to re-examine. Yeah. Was, was like basically putting the blinkers on and like shutting it down. And that inadvertently became a cautionary tale of, but it's the same stuff. I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, we all make mistakes. It doesn't matter if you make a mistake because we're all going to do it. Mm. It's what do you do next that really matters? And that is the true sense of, of good character. And mm. that to me is Nicole Kidman's character in, in Boy Ray. So, you know, while Jason's character was unable to do that in, in The Gift, Nicole's character is, is the, shows the heroic flip side to that coin so there's, yeah. there's a commonality to that and you know they're both scary movies to me because yeah the, you know boy raised is a real life fear there's no jump scares in it it's not a genre exercise there's not a lot of dark shadows in mm. it but in the cold harsh light of day the the potential for for around any corner for there to be danger for these kids is very very um hopefully prevalent for people watching the film yeah um, that there's a danger in, in, I mean, even like, you know, watching a character like, like Lucas's character finally declare his sexuality in, in an Arkansas kitchen. Mm. And that night a, a pickup truck arrived with two elders from the community yeah. and just go, yeah. what, what's going to happen here? Yeah. Is a, da- is a real life danger that I think a lot of people experience. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier your, your brother Nash, who's also a filmmaker and he works with you a lot. Yeah. Um, he had a film out as well this year. Is 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 there like a, a friendly sibling rivalry between the two of you? Well, not a, not not a rivalry. It's amazing. Nash is actually the reason I'm even directing. I, I, I you know, I tinkered with a couple of short films back in the day because there, there was this wonderful short film competition, and I was like, I want to, I want a part of that. But yeah. I, I didn't really want to be a director at that point. I was really interested in acting and writing. And then, you know, as I started to get the idea that I'd like to get behind the camera more. It was my brother that was the most encouraging. Okay. And he was the one that called me out whenever he felt like I was hesitating. And he's like, what are you, you know, why are you saying that you want to do this thing and why aren't you doing it? Like, why don't you set a date, tell everybody where to be and just get it done. Right. Then you got no excuse. Yeah. Um, he, he's one of my greatest supporters. You know, he, he finds his way to any festival where any of my stuff is playing. He, you know, was there for every frame that I was in front of the camera. Yeah. Is such an incredible um, inspiration to me and support, and also like on a on a technical level, he and David Michel are the people who whose sort of approach and style to placing a camera, yeah, is, is what really set the tone for me. The simplicity with which they handle, you know, creating story, um, which is very much in alignment actually with Jeff Nichols. There's nothing yeah. about their filmmaking that draws too much attention to itself it's not like look at my wild camera moves it's it's just like Mm. where do i need to put this camera to tell this part of the story so that when i cut it with the next part of the story it just builds you know yeah um so your your parents don't play favorites then in the edgerton household it's all it's all uh no favorites (laughs) i mean i'm pretty certain i'm the favorite they just won't articulate (laughs) it (laughs) no you don't no definitely not i mean you know um Never, never. My my mum. The, the only problem is, you know, I think, you know, I could, 
I could spit on the sidewalk and my mum would be like, look what he did. <laughs> you know, like sometimes I wish it took a little bit more to impress my mum. Okay. But I definitely think that the engine of my workaholism, which I think I've fully, fully submitted to my workaholism, mm. is um, is the need to sort of be impressive to them. Okay. And I'm sure it is a little bit for my brother as well. Um, Joel Edgerton, thank, thank you so much. For your Cheers. Time. Thanks, Thanks so much. Man. And that's it from Joel Edgerton, and that is it for this interview special. A Boy Raised, once again, is in cinemas right now. And if this is your first experience of the Empire Podcast, then we have regular episodes out every Friday. Our 350th episode, yes, we've been doing this for seven years, recorded live at King's Place in London with guests Joe Cornish and Sawi Ashton, is up right now. And we also have an Alita Battle Angel spoiler special with director Robert Rodriguez and producer John Landau coming your way soon as well if you don't already subscribe to the podcast it'd be brilliant if you could do so and if you could leave us a lovely glowing five-star review as well that would also be fantastic right that's enough for me i've been chris hewitt thank you so much for listening see you next time bye 